my name is George Jinglin. I am the founder of a youth market trends research company called Untapped, and I'm also the partner in a brand strategy and design firm called A Dozen Cookies. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thanks, George. Thanks for coming on today. What's it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I don't know, man. I really don't know. I wrestle with that every single day. Um, I think part of the reason when you and I first talked that you were interested in having this conversation with me is because uh, I took a I took a, a sort of a sideways route middle from midway through my career and asked uh, found an opportunity in Vietnam. And I went to go work in Vietnam for five years um, at one of the running one of the multinational ad agencies over there. Um, and I did it because I'd always had this sort of yearning to really feel like I was Vietnamese because I was born in 77. My parents got here in 75 and sort of that, like, that very first group of the next generation to be born here with without that sort of memory you know a lot of my friends who came over even at like four or five years old had some initial memories of coming over and sort of the trauma that was attached to it I, I was born in this country without that trauma you know the traumas I dealt with were were my parents traumas and the community's traumas but I bring that up to say like I I always felt disconnected from Vietnam you know I was Vietnamese I was Vietnamese hyphen you know hyphen American you know? And so I will tell you the one thing that I felt living in Vietnam was I'm also not Vietnamese, weirdly enough, you know, and not in the sense of like heritage wise, culturally, but like you land there and they make it very, very clear. You know, you know, had some kid one time, funny enough, and kind of just like patting my belly going, they don't make them like you around here, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, and so, so it's hard for me to answer that question. You know, I think like there's some folks who come on and sort of confidently answer it. And I think why I value what you're doing is because there's a whole segment of us that live in between, you know, we're just, we're trying to figure it out for ourselves right now. And, and being Vietnamese American or Vietnamese Australian, you know, um, any of us that are this this next generation, whether Vic Gu or Gop Viet, is a unique segment all on its own. So I, I can tell you what the Vietnamese American experience is like right now, but to answer like, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? I, I'm struggling to wrap my finger or my head around it. Yeah, I uh, I share that with you. I share it with you. And I don't think that you're like what you said in the very beginning, like it'll ever be answered. But that's a beautiful thing at this point. I've I've embraced that. It's it's a really unique opportunity, right? Yes. Like you don't have to look at it as like a negative thing. It's an exciting and interesting opportunity. Um, in the last five years, coming back to the, I've been back in the states probably for like seven years now. In the last five years, even the last like three and a half, has been really heartwarming in New York, where I've watched Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese food step into the spotlight. You know, um, and I remember 
I used to joke that people would say to me when I first lived in New York, like, you know, where can you go to go get good Vietnamese food? And I was like, California, you know, you couldn't find it here to save your life, you know, Yeah. or like, come on over, you know, and now, you know, restaurants popping up in the New York times, you look at like Saigon social, like getting a lot of love and when coffee supply, getting a lot of love. Um, and it warms the heart because now all of a sudden it's like, stepping into the spotlight are we having that that moment at least in those critical elements of popular culture that are highlighting you know where we're from our heritage and our values like you know Kevin Ray Chan wearing an Aoyai like my kids got a doll of her like rocking that Yeah. and I'm like you know and after she saw it Then she was like, this is so pretty. And then like, she went into her closet. I'm like, you have like two or three of those, like, Wow. you know, and she's like six and like, she went into her closet and like put them on and came out and she's like, okay, you know, this is really cool. Whereas before she was like, okay, this is great, but what is it? <laughs> Yeah. so. Shout out to uh, Saigon Social, Helen and Sarah over at uh, Win Coffee Supply. I was there last month and I got to meet both of, uh, well, I've known Sarah for a while, but just got to meet Helen. She's coming on soon to the podcast as well. Oh, very cool. Look, I, so many of the, the Vietnamese friends I know beeline for that place. Like, on Yeah, it's so weird that Monday. you mentioned those two ladies, you know, it's like Saigon Social and, and Wind Coffee Supply. It's the highest profile because it hits on, on just a very critical cultural element in New York, which is obviously the food scene. All right. So But there's like a hit dozen into... other... There's a dozen other places. Why Saigon Social? Um, I just want to hear your viewpoint. I mean, they're doing I know the answer for me, but I just yeah, want no, to no, hear no. Because they're doing it, they're doing it in the younger generation's way. They're doing it through social media, and and that's how it's spreading through word of mouth, right? Like, let's face it, the the restaurants that have been around a few years back, they're just they're not doing it the same way because maybe they're they're my age, you know, and and I'm full on like. you know, dad bod trying to figure out like, hey, kids, how does the TikTok work? Someone show me how to plug in the VCR, you know? Um, but they're they're hitting on those notes. And so the word is spreading very quickly, rapidly. They're maintaining a high profile. And I'm here for it. You know, I'm, I'm glad someone's doing it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. You know, uh, I've had different branding professionals on, um, probably you're probably the fourth or fifth and it's good to hear you guys' perspective because I'm interested in Vietnamese as a, as a brand and as someone who's lived in Vietnam yourself, if I were to come to you and I had like a bags of cash as a billionaire and the task that I gave you was to redesign the image, the brand of the Vietnamese people worldwide. What kinds of things do I need to start asking? What's the hook? Right. I was actually, I was having a, I was having a similar conversation with a friend the other day and they were asking, they were asking about the Asian hierarchy, you know, and sort of that, that jokingly, like where it all stacks up and stands through everything. Um, but one of the things that came out of it that I thought was a very practical side of the discussion was um, the ownable nature of accomplishments. Right. And so 
I know you and I've talked about like Korean culture in the past and like the rapid ascent that they've made in the entertainment industry. But today, when you talk about Asian pop music, people right away go to K-pop, right? So there's an ownable equity there, right? Um, you want to talk about fashion. Most people will right away go to Japan, right? Shibuya. Um, there's an ownable equity there. Someone's going to crucify me for this, I'm sure, and one of my Filipino friends. But when you look at all the amazing things that Filipino culture is known for, very few of them are ownable equities to the country, right? Athletic, great dancers, wonderful beaches, good singers, all absolutely true, right? There's a number of wonderful things that you can sort of like associate with with the culture and the people from a values and equity standpoint. And, and I'm talking about this from like a marketing standpoint, yep. right? In the way that I might go like Porsche's fast, you know, and Fords are tough. Um, but none of those equities are singularly ownable to Filipino culture right now, right? In that regard. And I think that's what makes it tough. And I think the first question I would ask if you say, okay, rebrand Vietnamese culture for me or, or the Vietnamese people, the first question I'd ask you is like, okay, where are we going to put our hook? You know, is it going to be in the food? And I think that's like one of those really unique of the moment ownable things right now is that Vietnamese food has like a very unique flavor profile, a complexity, you know, that stands out. You know, um, I'm taking a look at like VinFast filing for IPO. Is it going to be like an entrepreneurial nature? You know, um, because it may not be like in the technical expertise, but it may be in the ambition and the energy, right? Um, and I think maybe like 20 years back, it was still tied to the war. And then like 15 years back, it was tied to factories and labor. And those are not, those are not oh, marketing okay. hooks that I yeah. run with, you know? But how do you make how do you make something like K-pop? How do you make something that is ownable? How do you corner it? Because why didn't the why didn't the Filipinos corner music? How did how did they not get into the mindset? Because their singers and their musician artists are you know probably way ahead in the in the American game than any other Asian. I would I would yeah. argue right. But how is it that they did not own it? They didn't own their P-pop, like Filipino pop, or whatever. How how did the Koreans come to to have that ownable hook, that ownable corner? I I think it's more because when, I, and I admit my familiarity with Filipino culture is very limited, right? So again, I say like I'm probably gonna get crucified for this by some of my Filipino friends. Um, but because the, the music, the culture, the art is also taps into like the very sort of mainstream, like mainstream culture element of it. Korean, Korean pop went on live and, and quite literally like English, English language songs, right? Come out the gate, like new lead singer Journey, you know? <laughs> Last name is Banana, but he, he's, 
he's singing those songs perfectly to a T in the English language. That's not ownable. You know, he he has an ownable equity, but that's not something that's like uniquely part of the culture. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Or Apple D, yeah. Apple D, the Black Eyed Peas. Exactly. There's a right. Lot for the Philippines. There's very, it's but, exactly what you're saying. But there's nothing. But the, it's in the general. It's in the general sphere, right? You know. Um, okay, but they, see, this is why this is important. This dialogue. This is actually the first time I've heard of this concept of ownable corner, right? The ownable uh, equity. And it makes perfect sense, like as we're as I'm thinking about what you're saying. But now I want to get down to the mechanics. How do you get a country to find an ownable piece of equity out there? How do you, well, how okay, so equity. So I don't think you own food, but you can own a niche within it, right? Within that, like make okay. a name for it. Like for a majority of let's a majority of Americans. I have no data to prove this, but I'm guessing like if your family vacation is a Winnebago to Vegas, the only thing you know about Japanese cuisine is sushi, right? But there's like a unique singular item that is an ownable equity. Lululemon, it's a black pant until like all of a sudden it becomes more than that. But whenever I talk to a company or a brand and I go, okay, what's your black pant? What's the very first thing that you're going to have? The singular thing that you're going to get known for, and then you can sort of like land and expand, Right. You've got that one thing that everyone thinks you are fucking great at this. You're the best at it in the world. I want this. You're the only one I'm going to go to for this. Like, you know, we probably own sandwiches. You know, I, I think we have bigger aspirations than that. Definitely like coffee is something that we can own. And I think that's why what Sarah's doing is amazing. And plus her sticker game is tight. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's those are like those unique individual things that you just sort of you start with and then you kind of you put a, you start spinning a bunch of plates and then you look and you go that's the one that's going that's the one people are responding to and resonating to all right you start to pour energy into that right and you think back to like k-pop at one point and you go like okay there was rain then there was the wonder girls and then it all came right you know but it, it didn't like start as a flood it started as like a trickle and then you're like yeah ooh. a lot of it was serendipitous too you know, Jurassic Park came out in the theaters in Korea. I think it was in 94 or something like that. All of a sudden, the theatrical people, people in the theater side were like, wait a minute, we need to sell 1.4 million Hyundais to make one sale like this Jurassic Park in the theaters. Everybody's just like, all right, fuck this. We're going to go all in in the theater business, movie production business. It's like, but that's serendipity, right? Like it took somebody to recognize that for that to happen. And the willingness and sort of the mobility to like run after it when you see it, right? I think average person is good for like five or six opportunities in their life, but how many of them are like well-suited to like yeah. take advantage of that moment and go after it? So true, you know, man. Um, Sarah's a really good example. I don't know her personally, but like how many Vietnamese people know how to make a, a cafe sit down and have a cafe feed in the house. It's like a ton of us. How many of us have like gone back and forth? A ton of us. How many of us saw an opportunity and said, I'm going to do something with this and, you know, have the wherewithal to promote it, sink my life into it and like make it into something. One, her, right? There's her <laughs> and then there's some Kai Jin, right? There's Daniel Huaitin. Those two mm -hmm. are operating... 
and and you know the crazy thing is like they did 10 years in something way different than these beverages you know uh yeah. daniel white then was you know working you know in the community you know uh for for the regrowth after katrina in the gulf and sarah was working in media for like a, a good many years before she got to to coffee so you know it takes these sort of powerhouses they're they're very intellectual and, and very sharp people that get into these lateral moves over into the, the the beverage space and they just get the ecosystem so well and they get it they get the taste down they get the marketing down and they they're able to drive it well and then you don't always have to get it all nothing's ever perfect at first right, right? yeah when you look at like other entrepreneurial stories you look at Vori, right, as a brand, and the founder talks about how, like, almost lost his lunch on, like, the first initial investment he had, and then sort of, like, figured it out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any one of those. But I, I think the bigger point is just that it's not just, like, spotting the opportunity, but spotting the opportunity, having the desire, having the ambition, and having the ability to execute all together in those moments to take advantage of the opportunity you know, and, and now you're starting to see some of those spaces. Um, and maybe those are going to be the thing that start to create per different perceptions and those ownable equities for Vietnam, Vietnamese people, Vietnamese culture, you know, um, and I think that's the start, but you don't, I don't think sitting down and going, okay, here's the plan. I think it's more about sitting down and spotting where are we starting to see movements, you know, and then how do we get in front of them and take advantage of it and sort of like ride that wave? Because India has got a phenomenal film industry, right? They don't necessarily own movies. They carved out a niche of a specific type or genre of film that has a recognizable sort of like a familiar thread that runs through all of them. You know, the music, the dance, the dress and all of a sudden now you have this like branded equity now the challenge is how do you get beyond that because anyone who spent a minute in india knows that there's so much more to the place than bollywood yeah. and curries you know um so now they're looking at those other parts i was lucky enough like a few years back to work on a branding project with a big multinational out of india and they were trying to figure out like how do we talk about all these other things the number one selling tractor in America is actually from an Indian company. Wow. No one, no one goes, Ooh, Indian farmers, you know? So those are all the things that I think as a people we need to think about. Um, but we have bigger challenges when it comes to our brand, you know? Um, and it really starts with, I think our fragmentation. Um, there's still a lot of Vietnamese people in America who are not proud of Vietnam, who don't want to go and like rep it, you know? Um, those challenges have to be solved before it becomes easier to brand the country. When in fact, like arguably we're a split brand. Do because... we solve it or we just let people die off? Man. I mean, I've talked about this. It's deep. <laughs> I know, I know. I've, I've heard you, but I, 
I, I don't know the answer to it, right? I think I think um, there needs to be a turning point that becomes a point of pride that everyone can get behind that sort of like supersedes all of that or we do we do wait, you know? And truth be told, it's what, a 30-year window? So, I mean, as... Wait, what's a 30-year window? As much as I sort of like hate to think about it, it wait, it's real talk. Years? Is, You're saying it's 30 more years? No, I'm saying 30 more years until like everyone who is Vietnamese is post is born post-war, right? Um, that there's no more, that there's no more survivors of the war and sort of yeah. that fragmented population. Right now, let's face it, like for a lot of people in Australia or America um, or France, when they think about Vietnamese people, they don't think about people in Vietnam. They think about the Vietnamese people that they've grown up around in their community who have come over as refugees, who have a very specific point of view um, and represent a, the brand in its own way, in a different way yeah. than perhaps it is in Vietnam right now. You know, I don't know if we're gonna have to wait for a very long time. I have a feeling, just a hunch, that this new HBO series, The Sympathizer, yeah. is going to change some hearts and minds everywhere. I think some, yeah. right? But you're talking, I guess for me, you're talking about something much bigger, which is you're talking about like a national branding, right? Yeah, but here's like why. When you, yeah. you know. Here's why I, I, I mean that. Because it's not just this idea of HBO, Robert Downey Jr., Gauke Ying, uh, all these big names and there's people from Vietnam that are in the thing. And then there's people who are like, who never set foot in Vietnam, young Vietnamese kids that are playing the main parts coming out of like mm -hmm. all over America and Canada and Australia. But the thing is this, the actual content of this story, the, the, the premise, the theme, the actual word sympathizer, it can go a lot of crazy ways, man. And if you've read the book, it, the deeper implications of what this is all about is like open your mind and your eyes up to see every every angle here. And I think that once mainstream America, mainstream, uh, you know, it, it shows in all these mainstream English speaking countries, it will change the hearts and minds of young people and old people alike to kind of neutralize the way we're looking at things and change the way we we we. So I think it's going to be a dialogue enhancer, if anything, it's going to start us thinking about things differently instead of just mm -hmm. taking a one-sided approach to everything. It's not binary. And I think that that's what the sympathizers here, it's going to do. It's going to have us think about things in a non-binary, much more wide way of, of, of looking at our history. Shit's not black and white. It's not, it's not, but I'm trying to compartmentalize the conversation here, right? Like, yeah. part of this discussion is around the notion of like, how do you brand it, right? And I look at the sympathizer and I go, first off, like so excited about it happening, but it's, it's a period piece at the same time, right? Um, it's coming out on HBO Max. And I think you from a branding standpoint, you would see a bigger impact and effect if after the film, the people involved from production to directors, writers, actors, then start to move into a bunch of different pieces. Um, 
where you start to see them as like a next generation or next wave of theatrical talent. Yep. That for me is like something that culturally will have a bigger impact. I think what you're talking about here is a conversation that a lot of us are having with our parents where we're going like, hey, you want to come back to Vietnam? And they're like, no, I, I'm not ready to go back. Some parents are and some parents aren't yet because for them, and I can't even imagine the pain that they're probably feeling when you discuss sort of being ripped away from your home, you totally. know, like a whole generational trauma and PTSD. So like there's all my empathy and sympathy for that. Yeah. But when you're talking about like mass culture, it, it's, sometimes it's a lot more superficial you know it's got to be something like people can get excited and get behind um arguably Vietnam in the women's world cup i know you you talked about this on a previous podcast might be more of that challenging moment which is like you want to cheer for your people but you don't want to put on a kit <laughs> look I've, i've got i've got a national team jersey somewhere in the house um And I love it, but I'm not wearing that in LA. <laughs> you know? Wait, you wear it in New York? I'll wear it in New York. I'll wear it at home. You know, I'll I'll rock and walk around here. But also because like majority of New Yorkers are ignorant enough that they wouldn't even know what it is. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, I might argue that I know. A number of Vietnamese Americans wouldn't know like where the shirt's from because like the team hasn't been promoted well enough, yeah. right? Um, probably think that I'm like, you know, Chinese ping pong player or some shit. Um, but that's sort of a harsh reality of it right now, right? Yeah, Korea didn't uh, have to go through that. Other, they didn't have to go through that, yeah. right? And look, I've I've got three red stripes tattooed on one of my arms, right? And I was talking with a friend, and she's just laughing. She's like, "Better cover that shit up when you come home." <laughs> How old were you when you got that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe like it was after I lived in Vietnam, like five, six years ago. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. Uh -huh. Hold up. Why did you do it after you left Vietnam? That's significant, man. Oh, there just weren't a lot of tattoo parlors since I got at the time. Now there's a proliferation. No, no. Like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's significant that you got the three stripes. Like, why the three stripes? What, like, that's a statement to me. It is. It's a statement about, like, who I am and, and you know, what I'm about. Like, my kids' names tattooed on me. Like, I, I don't have tattoos that are just purely for decoration. Every one of them sort of represents one of the elements and building blocks of who I am. And I think this goes back to what we were talking about. Is like, one of the things that I, look, I love living in Vietnam. I would love to retire there. It is my favorite place on earth. Um, but I embraced and accepted living there as, as an American with Vietnamese roots that was close to the culture, but never truly within it. But I didn't, when living there, I wasn't made to feel excluded the way that I sometimes feel in the United States, mm. right? Great point. Like it was it was always like jokingly, but they never let me forget it, you know. But it's like, yeah, you're still an American, you know. And even I mean, even here, people are like you're a New Yorker, you know. So there are those elements within it and those labels. But I think coming home, 
one, when I was there, I probably would have gotten more ink, but like at the time there just wasn't a lot of places that were reputable that I was comfortable going to go get a tattoo. Um, I would get tattoos when I came home, but like each trip I would probably like, I picked up like a tattoo for my wife, you know, and next trip back, I picked up something else and then so on and so forth. But at a certain point, it is because my identity is firmly grounded in a very specific part of Vietnamese history and a specific subculture within Vietnamese people. I'm like processing it. I'm like, I'm I'm waiting for like this phone call from my dad going, "Did you really fucking call us a subculture?" So. <laughs> No, no, no. Those 98 million people in Vietnam, that's a subculture. That's what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> he is, right? I mean, I don't blame him. It's got to be hard. It's got to be so, so hard. You know? Um, it is. You it, know, and but, you know, I, I have been doing a lot of thinking about this, right? Okay, so... I, you know, we let's take it back to my our grandparents' generation, right? My dad, my dad's dad, got killed in 1944, 1945, died in 1945. Mm -hmm. He was the like the town or the province's chief of police, right? He got assassinated by Viet Minh, which is the modern day evolution of communists, right? But they're not really communists yet at that time, 1945, I guess, right? So. Who was my grandfather serving at the time? Who was he working for that the nationalists, the people of Vietnam, had to assassinate him? He was a French, right? He was working for the French, right? Right? That's, that's, he's working for the French. His logical kids, conclusion. Huh? Right? It's a logical conclusion. Right, yeah. yeah. He's a French pawn. But I was very proud of my grandfather growing up my entire life. But then I just started to think about these things. These are things I'm, I'm really thinking about all the time now. Then his three sons, my dad's uh, siblings and him, three of these guys make it into like the, the elite you know, police force. They, they serve under the CIA. Some of them get sent to Quantico, Virginia, twice in the 60s. And they serve who? Who are they serving? They're serving white guys again. Yeah. Their dad served a white guy. Their son served a white guy. Then the third guy, the third generation gets born. Me, I get born. What does my dad name me? He names me after a white guy. He names me after the sponsor. That my name's George. <laughs> on, on paper, is that what they named you when you were born? Uh, my, my dad actually wanted to name me T uh, because that's my grandmother's name. Uh -huh. And he actually didn't think that she was going to make it to the States. So you um, put George. Weird. George Jing Wing. On your birth certificate. Mine is on Kenneth, my birth certificate. Kenneth Eugene Wing. So here's my point. We got three generations of like white guy, white guy, white guy, like all influenced somehow. And it just, when I think about this, I'm like, wait a minute. This is trippy. Because when I think about this now and I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if this is a history that I feel very proud of sometimes when I think about, you know, when I think about that, you know, it's like, hmm. And, you know, I love my uncles. I love my father. They are, they're all gone now.
grandfather, uh, uh, you know, was gone before my father was six months old. You know, so all one, all of everybody's passed away. And and you're right. I have a lot of empathy for the loss. I have empathy for the lives that you know the destruction and the trauma. But at the end of the day, I wonder how much of a choice each man had when they were thinking about service. Yeah. And I'll stand up to any grown up and talk about this shit because I talked to my father, no, yeah. talked to my uncle, I talked to all of these guys when they were alive. I mean, I think that's fair, right? But. It's not just, this is a different situation, right? This isn't just like fathers, brothers and sons. This is like mothers and daughters, grandmothers. Um, this is being told you have to leave. In every one of those elements you talked about before, then you want to even go further back, Japanese coloniz uh, colonization. Every round of it, you never had to leave. You never had to leave and be left alive and look back and go, Shit. I know, but it's think still, about why did we have to leave? But why did we have to leave? Right? That's the thing. No, but but can can I mean like you're talking about like an era of folks who are like genuinely afraid for their lives. Sure. Like, sure. You know, a friend of mine was telling me the story of his mother, like coming to the beach, holding two young boys and and looking at at the guys who are running the boats and going, if you don't let us on, I'm going to scream and they're going to show up and they're going to kill us all because that's how afraid they were to leave. And shit did go down that and way. I, too. Yeah. Right. Like that, these are the stories that like blew my mind because I was born here. I was like, okay, I woke up and for a certain age, I was like, I'm American looking around. And it's like, wait, why am I dead? Oh, okay. Wait. Okay. This is really different. Right. And, you know, kids don't process everything and parents don't want to share the context and share the horrors with them. Um, and so so it's a different scenario, I think, than everything else you previously described, because like w whatever the rationale of the reasons for what they participated in, they're in country hoping to affect some sort of change, benign, malevolent, whatever it may be. Right. But like stay in country trying to affect change. It's like, yo, you got to go. You can't come back. You didn't just lose, but like get off the court. We go back for the first time in 99. And I go back on a family trip, right? I graduate from university and they go, okay, here's your, here's your graduation present. We're going to take you to Vietnam. You've been asking for years and it's open now and we finally feel safe. Let's go. We go by one house. And this is, I think to your point, did you have to leave? We go by one house and we realize this is where my mom used to live now gotten turned into an apartment building right so first off trying to process the fact that my mom's family home is now an apartment building what kind of life did y'all live so from a very practical standpoint yes they had to go because someone came and wanted their shit like that's just like you're gonna get robbed you need to go um came by another house. My mom just kind of like couldn't help herself. She's like, my best friend growing up lived here, rang the doorbell. And they were there. She came out. So to your point, like, did they have to leave? It's just like a very, a very straightforward no. Like there are people who didn't. 
but I also don't have real insight into what kind of life they had during that time. You know, um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather chose not to leave. He chose to stay. He said, look, I'm old enough. This is my house. I live in Minzoom. This is all I got. I'm going to stick around with like one of my cousins. Last cousin came over in like 2001, 2002 and stayed to take care of grandpa. And like this one old guy's like, my house, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I'm just imagining him taking his slipper off and like waving at people going, get off my yard, you know? Um, so, I mean, that question is like, I don't, I don't know, but I do believe that everyone who left genuinely felt like they had no choice whether we want to look back and have a rational discussion and say, did you really have a choice? Did you not, you know, I don't know. That starts to move into some, some Kanye shit. Some murky, murky waters. (laughs) Yeah. Some very, and and I, I can't comment on that, but I can comment on genuinely believing that they had to go. When you look at like the trauma, they had to go. No, no doubt about it. No doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, like, that's, I mean, this is where this conversation goes. So that's why I say, like, I don't, I don't know if you're going to get to a place where like you change the way we as a, we as a people in totality are perceived as long as they're, as long as we can't come to terms with that as, as a people. You know, in that you have such significantly significant populations that have those opposing viewpoints and perceptions who who influence the people around them. Right. So that so many Americans today will say, I've had some experience with Vietnamese folks and the more progressive or liberal ones or live on the coasts who interact with Vietnamese cultures are going to have like, you know, very positive views on it. But they're going to see us one way versus another whereas like i don't think that's the case with some of these other cultures that you're referencing where people have emerged there is no like unique identity for like well i as an outsider don't perceive like a unique identity on like a a a korean american or a japanese american other than like hey you just sort of lost a little bit of the flavor not you have a different flavor right Mm, that's a great point and japan's in the world cup every one of them's out there like yeah rocking samurai kid right (laughs) korea goes down four to one everyone's crying (laughs) you know so japan everybody's cleaning stadiums it's one one way of looking at everything yeah you know i i still you know you'll still have like aunts and uncles who insist that like they said it wrong because they say it with a Hanoian accent, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like can't agree on some of those things. So that, that I think is the bigger branding challenge. But I think when you have the superficial elements, like, like business and culture and entertainment that start to emerge and we find something that's uniquely ownable. Um, I think that's when you start to like carve out that space. I, I love what Tai Nguyen is doing with Aoyai's. He's so passionately, passionately dedicated to bringing that back, right? And putting it in the spotlight and an appreciation for that that artifact and turning it in like high fashion. And it's like, okay, you know, when you start to see that, 
like rocking runways, you know, and you see like a, a DVF or like, you know, um, Balenciaga, like steal that as inspiration for like the next thing they do instead of stealing shit from Ikea. That's when you go, okay, like we're firmly ensconced within pop culture. But I do think the easy ones right off the bat are going to be, is going to be coffee, you know, is going to be those like easy, simple, superficial things that we can all agree on. Our coffee is great. <laughs> so, you know, but that's, that's the brand part. And it is as a marketing guy, I'm open. I'm willing to admit that, you know, branding and advertising and marketing, it tends to play at like that superficial level. You're not dealing with like the weight, of the content and the cultural context and, and the depth of the philosophical questions. So like it's gotta be light, snappy, memorable. So what I'm I'm gathering today is it's not really gonna be a step-by-step -step paint by numbers process here. It's gonna be a little different. It's gonna be like let's identify what's moving and then let's shape up or behind it. Let's shape yeah. up and let's mobilize behind that. You know, tech culture is definitely moving. Startup culture is moving. But when you think about like, what are the things that we've like really gotten into the public eye for across like across in the cultural conversation in the last few years? I mean, it's across the board. It's like Flappy Bird, the counting song. You know, these are like sort of these weird outliers that that are fun, but are not true representations of our culture, nor do they push it forward. And they're not ownable. <laughs> they're not. Well, I mean, it's not something I want us to own either, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's awesome. I'm psyched for it. Like, you know, was singing that damn counting song to my kid when she was <laughs> before she could talk. <laughs> like, but um, yeah. You know, is that going to be the thing that, like, when people see you and go, like, oh, hey, you know, this is this is what we know you guys for. Whereas, like, versus, like, massive electronics industry yeah. and and great entertainment industry, you know. Um, and arguably, you could say that about India as well, right? And they just, they've, they've each got their own flavor of it, a unique flavor of it. So, like, what is going to be, like, the Vietnamese flavor of that? And, you know, food, fashion... But even, like sort but of even India didn't do what Korea did. No, they didn't. They, they didn't. Did and that but that is around the mobility and and the desire and the energy to make the investment do it. And yeah. was, I mean, has anyone been able to accomplish what, what Korea did in that yeah. scant period of time? Yeah. And, and I mean if you think about Indonesia, you know, fourth biggest country, you know, they got they have a lot of millions of people it's bigger than the u.s and they mm -hmm. there's they they have the money india has the money china has the money but nobody's adopting indian music or 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 chinese music or indonesian music the way everywhere you go they're listening to korean pop and it's an, it's just a yeah. just a beautiful thing to watch but everywhere you go people are eating chinese food <laughs> I mean, yep. India's got its own Chinese food. I, we saw a Panda Express the other day. I was like, pull over. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there are, it needs a certain consistency and homogeny from a branding standpoint. Now, I'm 
just talking about branding, right? Like you, you just need to have like a unified, consistent point of view on something. And we don't tend to. Korea benefited from speed, resources, but also perhaps like the smaller size and nature and sort of, again, the homogenous nature of the people being able to say like, hey, this is this is a thing we're going to represent it. And then I think also think like one of the big differences contextually, like where media and entertainment and culture and the speed with which it's communicated today, like things move at the speed of social, you know, and to tie this back to someone we were talking about earlier, when you, when you ask me like, why do I pinpoint like Saigon Social or um, Lynn Coffee Supply? Because they're moving at the speed of social. They're speaking in the current, language of the cultural conversation in a way that everyone who came before them didn't right j-pop was there for a long time but when when i was young and we wanted to listen to j-pop i was getting a cassette tape yeah you know we were passing that around the way our parents passed around paris by night yeah. like you know that was good everyone music. come over and like yeah everyone come over i'm gonna put in the vcr and, but in fact now there is some V-pop that's starting to go around where like I'm seeing it on TikToks where it's actually like folks in China dancing to like Vietnamese pop songs, right? And so, you know, I I could be completely wrong and just be misjudging the speed with which it's going to move um in this current era. But I think I think the way we communicate just plays a really big part in it in a way that's very different than 20 years ago. I can't wait to watch this history unfold. I mean, I'm we're both sitting at the, you know, front side front court side seats. We're seeing this and you know, I'm chomping at the bit going, where is this going? Where is this game going, you know? It's constantly moving and it's so exciting. It's really exciting to not know where and how this is being, you know, where is that that one thing that's going to really take off and 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 you know, light up yeah. And I mean, the good thing about that is to get there, we're going to get to enjoy and cheer for a lot of different heroes that represent our culture. Yeah. Whether that be like a Bowen or a Helen or a Thai, you know, you punch against, a, you push against a lot of walls before you break through <laughs> and we get to cheer. We get to cheer for all of them. Like, I lived in Seattle for a bit. So like I, I have, I get a little sad when you think about the Oklahoma city thunder, but I'm sitting here like texting friends going, they got a Vietnamese guy on the team. It's going to be awesome. Right. I was a Pac-10 kid and I didn't go to UCLA, but I almost started cheering for UCLA like a little bit ago. I'm like, look, all right, one of us, we're there. We're on the floor, you know? So you push against a lot of these walls in a lot of different ways. And it starts to validate the claim. It validates the story. It puts you on stage and then you break through. And whichever one is the one that breaks through. Um, I will say, I think we're going to be more excited about the sympathizer than perhaps the, than broad culture because it's a period piece. Um, but that has more to do, that has more to do with the context of the conversation rather than the quality of the work or any sort or the testament it makes to the people involved with it, the development. And, and it's a leap, but I just don't think that's going to be the thing that like breaks through and puts us on the map. But you know what? You have to have those things before 
the final thing punches through. Again, I'll go back to the example, like the Wonder Girls were amazing, you know, but people weren't, I yeah. think we were like still on MySpace and Friendster at the time. It just didn't break through right. in the same way for that very reason. And I think they were one of the first, they were one of the first Korean groups to like tour in the States, you know, and it's it, always first one through the wall, gets a bloody face. Yeah. And if you think Psy and Gangnam Style sort of, that was sort of like the thing that was like, wait, that looks really weird, but somehow really catchy and fun to keep watching over and over and over. But it was like weird at the time. And then looking back, mm -hmm. you're like, wait a minute. That's the, one of the things that really broke the dam. Yeah. Was that the precursor that all of a sudden you're like, yeah. made it acceptable, comfortable, acceptable, right? Comfortable, you know? right. Acceptable, comfortable. It felt normal after Psy put that out there, after Gundam Style went fucking viral. After you watched all these other ones, you're like, wait a minute. This is fun to watch. This is, I can get into this. And it wasn't yeah. as weird because Gangnam Style was like kind of weird if you if you really think about what we were thinking before Gangnam Style and then after that we're just like oh shit whatever's coming oh we got pretty faces men and women they're just beautiful to watch the videos are awesome <laughs> and they're fun yeah and that was the one that just killed it yeah you know that broke it through and it was like and I, I think it's interesting hearing you talk about it though no one called it k-pop People called it pop, right? Mm. It was pop from a Korean guy. It wasn't K-pop yet. Oh, wow. It was just yeah. it's like, and then all of a sudden it like broke open like this genre, you know? And at the same time, like I think about like Hollywood and our films and you've got wonderful Vietnamese actors, both Vietnamese American and Vietnamese actors working in Hollywood, right? And I took my daughter to Disneyland recently and we ran into, I don't even know the character that we know when plays. And, you know, my daughter gravitates towards her because it's the first character she sees that looks like her. And I look around and I ask them, and I go, yeah, but where's the Rose Tico? And they're like, who? I'm like, come on, work at Disneyland. You're a cast member and you can't tell me you don't know, like, the characters from, didn't you read your manual? You know, but those are sort of the things. It's like, increase the profile. Right. Whereas like we all celebrate that moment. We celebrate, you know, the character. We celebrate the accomplishment of one of our own. But until it breaks through where like other people are going like, yeah, you know, like where's our Jeremy Lin? <laughs> and and he still hasn't normalized like Asian people playing basketball. But first one to punch through the wall. Yeah. He's definitely one of the guys who just like hit, you know, knocked really hard. And it's, you know, it's almost there. But yeah, that one it's superstar almost. that's going to break through. Yeah. And, but it's, it's not just the superstar that breaks through them. Then it's like, you got to have that, that group of people that then minimizes it, makes it comfortable. Right. Yeah. You you're have that, pink. have your sigh. Yeah. And then you're black pink you and know? then you're fucking BTSs. And yeah, 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 yeah. You got to have yeah. that wave that just yeah. pushes right through and just right through the, after the thing breaks, it just comes flooding through with, with the, all this talent. And there were other things that normalized in the conversation that we don't necessarily think about, right? Like there was a there was a group that was like a flash in the pan for K-pop called To Anyone. <clears throat> and Microsoft used one of their hit songs in one of their ads. It just became, and then you're just putting like media dollars behind it, right? And it just becomes like a normalized part of language. I guarantee you 99% of the people who heard the song didn't recognize it as K-pop because it, it, 
it was, I think it was before we were actually formalizing as K-pop. It was a, a Korean girl group. At that time, it was just like, sorry, it's just like, it's pop from a Korean girl group. And this is really catchy, mm. you know? And so you start to normalize things and make it every day. Like this starts to happen when you go to like any rest, like any coffee shop and you go, yeah, I want a Vietnamese coffee. I don't want espresso. Then that's like, it's part of the cultural conversation, right? Because 80% of the people who go to Starbucks don't know shit about it, like Italy, except for like Chef Boyardee. So, <laughs> you know, this is, those are the places, those are like the interesting places where it weaves into the fabric, you know? Um, I'm stuck on food because it's just the most visible one, but you you start to see those signs and symbols like popping around the codes for it, right? go to like most ice cream shops today and you will find like a Vietnamese coffee flavor somewhere in there. Like this is like the easy thing that like mass culture can adopt, but they can't take from us. Right. So they, they pay tribute to it. They acknowledge our culture in the process of doing that. And so when you start to see that move across in other like ownable ways and other unique ways, you know, I'd love to see like a Vietnamese sneaker company say, fuck, everyone already knows we have the manufacturing expertise. That's such a great point, man. Yeah. God so George, that stopped turning out your shoe and we're just, we're making, making our, our shit now. Yeah. And look, China's doing that with like Anta and um, uh, some of the, the names escape me, but they're starting to try and uh, leaning. And they're starting to try and break in and like they go and they get like Dwayne Wade as a as a sponsored athlete and those kinds of things. So they're starting to break through. And then it's probably like the next one that comes over. For a long time, ASICS was in like the running era, right? And everyone, and uh, you know, um Onitsuku and people are like, oh, you know, like that's a classic sneaker, you know, that's that's like that Japanese style of heritage. And that those are the things that become ubiquitous that then brand a culture. Right. outside of the culture itself, right. right and and i know a lot of folks probably like roll their eyes at what i'm saying because it is so superficial and it doesn't give real honor to what is great about all these individual cultures and especially our own but the question you asked was on a global scale how do we change the way we're perceived oh, it's such a great answer i mean something as basic as shoes and it's not basic just because it's shoes but it's basic because it's being <laughs> the best shoes are ma made in vietnam as a result of yeah. industri industrialization vietnam in 20 years ago three three decades ago whatever and why isn't somebody taking the reins and i'm, I'm kanye it right step in and do it and be hey, that you know guy. what that earlier conversation we had about like someone with the wherewithal in the moment like maybe one of your next guests is gonna go hey you know what that was a really good point i'm a designer i'm gonna go talk to a factory and make my own fucking sneaker you know but instead they're like they're making an electronic car or an electric car which is also amazing like don't get me wrong like one of my friends just took a job there she left mercedes and I'm just sitting, they called me and they're like, what do you know about this company? And when they're asking, mm, black couple from Atlanta, who I've known for years, who have been diehard car people and she's leaving Mercedes. It's like, when I tell you the pride I felt 
<laughs> answering the call on this initial conversation going, wait, you're taking this seriously? Wow. Oh, that's awesome. And they're picking up and they're relocating and they're moving to LA. And then I'm reading about like VinFast getting ready to IPO. Like these are the moments, you know? You know who you should talk to? You should talk to Nick Tran. Yeah. Let's see him over at TikTok. Yeah. Come on, man. Use your platform. <laughs> Boost us in the algorithm, man. <laughs> but didn't he get fired from TikTok or? I don't know. I, I, last I checked, I mean, I can't. I'm, yeah, we're a couple degrees of separation, yeah, so I can always some, ask. Some but... of my friends were like, "You want to get Nick Trano? And I'm like, "Yeah, I would love to," but um, I think it like he left really on awful terms at TikTok. But I'd love to get him on. I mean, I have a friend who knows him. Yeah, definitely somebody. Who... <laughs> no. but, but let's go back to fin, Vinfast real quick. Um, yeah, if, if Vinfast does bad and they just tank and they do horrible, what is that like for? Vietnamese Americans. I mean, it's going to suck on a couple of fronts, right? It's going to, I think it's sort of, I think we're on a trajectory right now that is based on high achievement that starts to relegate us to potentially the, the notion that we have the inability to execute at the high, high levels that then it becomes, you know, is it just labor versus entrepreneurialism, like true industry versus just being industrious? But there's also like this je ne sais quoi, like to branding as well. Like what if it's just that, that magic touch that certain things like apples and Max or Jay-Z or just people have that magic touch that they can just make it feel right and what if everything else is good the car runs well the mechanics are there but the design or whatever whatever the marketing whatever the feel of the concept of the brand the naming of the company vinfast it's just this one thing that could be off and there goes our one chance that well so it's not our one chance right it's not our one chance first off i think that's the important thing to look at right is like this is one chance in the car industry no no it's like one chance in the car industry in the 2020s <laughs> you know everyone else has had the benefit of hundreds if not thousands of years of history in developing their identities right you know you, you keep going back and picking on one particular example because of korea but it's unique there's not really a number of other nations that have been able to, or sort of peoples that have been able to build their identity in with that sort of like singularity and speed right and at a certain point they really didn't either they had a hook and then that opened it up for everyone to go like, okay, let's take a look at Korean food, Korean culture, mm -hmm. Korean fashion, right? But it was the hook that got people to pay attention. That came very fast. But the building of the culture in and of itself, very long. You ask about like, what is it going to mean for Vietnamese Americans? Not for Vietnamese people. You said, what is it going to mean for Vietnamese Americans? I think it for a specific segment of people here who already struggle with the notion that 
we are, we come from a place that is known for cheap labor, still bears the brunt of, you know, poor portrayals in war movies. You know, we're starting to push back against that, that this would be a setback in that particular regard. And what makes me really sad about that too is it goes back to our larger conversation around like the difference in perceptions of Vietnam, even within the cultures in that I think if that happens, I think you're going to have a lot of Vietnamese Americans who are going to be happy about it. Yeah. And it's in the older generation and they're going to go like, see, and that sort of shot and fraud about like, mm -hmm. they were wrong. They were always wrong. It's going to still go wrong. Right. Like, I think, I think there's still a lot of folks who it breaks their heart that the country is growing the way it is yeah. because in some ways you were effectively told like, you don't get to be a part of this. Get out. Only to see the country succeed by adopting Western ideals. Right. You know, I used to joke with friends like we, America lost the war when it came to bullets and guns, but they won with MTV. You know, I can't think of a more capitalistic entrepreneurial place than Saigon right now. I only wish America was as capitalistic as Vietnam. Communism is just a label right now. That, there's nothing communist about that country. Mm -hmm. Or China. Well, <laughs> the government, though. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, but like, when We're you look about the at the policy, you know, yeah. You know, and, and it's just, then it becomes like labels. You know, it's Republicans and Democrats. What do they really stand for? You judge them by their actions, not by their labels. So. This has been fascinating, man. Uh, you know, I came to, to listen to you and your work about, you know, w with youth culture. And <laughs> you know, I had like, I had a little. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. This. <laughs> You know, I was trying to get into the youth uh, c uh, conversation with you in order to get to this whole Vietnamese branding thing, but we got right to it. And I, I'm like, I am so much more happier because of that. Uh, well, you know, you got right to the point. You opened it up and, you know, you you brought up a lot, a lot of things that I think for me uh, are new because although I've been talking about these things for two years, I mean, this whole idea of like an ownable equity, this ownable corner um, and breaking, you know, breaking through and then having this sort of like this wave behind you that's been prepped for many years, followed through. I think that's going to be an important indicator and an important thing to look out for in the in the next 10 years. Yeah, no, I hope so. man. I hope so. You know, you always talk about how like everyone's success is built on the backs of the folks who came before you. Right. And what is going to be interesting exciting and has also been a challenge is effectively you have a people that had to completely reinvent themselves 47 years ago right because it's not just that you came to this country but you had to come to this country and establish the identity here and then do that in a way that still wasn't able to build off the existing identity right Japanese folks who come here enjoy the benefit of building off the pre-existing equities, right? Everyone has a preconceived notion for good or for bad when you meet a Japanese person about what that means, right? 
sort of like it's only when they sort of break the mold that you're surprised, right? We came in as mold breakers to begin with to say we're not our parents' generation go, we're not like them. Well, then what do you like? And then having to like establish it, build it, prove it. And I think there were a lot of folks, at least in my parents' generation, sort of hit with a certain sense of self-loathing about our cultural identity because they didn't want to be associated with something that was so painful for them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's try hard to assimilate. Let's be American. Let's name our kids Ken and George instead of like, you know, <laughs> you know, let's learn to fit in here real quick, real fast. And I, I was actually thinking about this recently and what makes it different than, than perhaps like the Ukrainian refugees that are coming here though is we don't blend in or, you know, we didn't blend in then from a population standpoint. It's not like you kind of like throw on a USA Jersey and like, everyone's like, Oh yeah, you know, that, that's Tim. Mm -mm. They've been here forever. And it's like, no, like I said, we're, I'm always going to be hyphen hyphen American, you know, um, in a way that is like, very very different than some of the other identities that are being created right now you know um i'll tell you like when i was a kid not even as a kid even today i've never felt comfortable wearing red white and blue oh, i've never felt comfortable like sporting it rocking sporting it. I, I cheer. It's part of my identity. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm not and in no way sort of a statement about it, but it's like, you know, it doesn't feel there's right. always this sort of like, there's always this feeling in the back of my head, you know, that, that someone's, you know, <laughs> you get that like country bumpkin is going to like in between like spitting tobacco and chewing on a hay straw is going to be like, you know, where'd y'all find him? You know? So it's there. I can't pretend it's not, you know, and I, and I hope my daughter never experiences it. But it's all contextual, man. It's all contextual where you live, who you roll with, where you yeah. go, what ballpark you're in, what yeah. year of the ballpark, you know, if you're at a country concert in that ballpark, it's all, you know, and, and I'm speaking from experience. I've went to go listen to Garth Brooks and, and, uh, Leanne Rhymes and you know uh, all these country singers back in the '90s, you know, and and I was the only Asian guy in the audience, and mm -hmm. you know you're right, I I was never able to really sport the American flag, but I was a U.S. Marine and uh, I did feel the the patriotism of wearing you know a uniform like cami uniforms that says U.S. Marines on it with the win last name, but you're right, it just something about it does not feel entirely comfortable. Um, but then again, it depends on where you are too. Cause if I was in a stadium full of Marines and we were all mixed up, I mean, it feels appropriate then, but at a Garth yeah. Brooks concert to wear a, an American flag on my t-shirt, which a lot of people do just feels mm -hmm. weird. Mm -hmm. like a handful of black guys, yeah. one Asian guy. And you know, it just feels yeah. weird. And the irony is, is like from, from all the marks where people might say, this is what makes you American, right? You've served, born here, kids here. 
in what way are you less than in, in any other way? But it's sort of the judgment because, and it's not a racial thing, it's a labeling thing that Asian first, then Vietnamese, then Vietnamese Americans, right? But like even you walk into a room and everyone's American, you're like, which one's Ken? I guarantee someone probably goes the Asian guy. <laughs> That's branding, right? So, I mean, those are the, this is sort of that uphill battle on it. So, like, in fact, what I love about what's happening right now is that the script gets flipped because I, I don't think our parents' generation was able to embrace it in the same way and go and be proud of being Vietnamese in the same way that, like, we are we are trying to be now right it's ironic in yeah. terms of yeah and pushing those things forward that like make us wonderful i mean from a branding standpoint for a long time known for nail salons you know like if there was a singular sort of branding for vietnamese americans anyway it was, yeah no you know, nail industry and it's not the thing we want to be known for but that's like the Cambodians and probably donut shops or, you know, the Koreans and dry cleaners in the, in the nineties and stuff, eighties and nineties, you know, right. It's yeah. not something that they, well, See, it's not a cultural export. But they, they weren't known for, they were known for the industriousness around it. Right. Not yeah. known for like the product in itself. No one's going like, I want Cambodian donuts. Yeah. You know, or I, I only want like, but people will go, I want Japanese hair straightening. I'm like, what the fuck is that? They have straight hair. Japanese hair straightening. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, right? But I think when it comes to some sort of expression, I think that's where the value is. That's where the money and that's where the the prestige, where people want to be, you know, if it's ex in the expression, if it's done right, if it feels right, that cultural je ne sais quoi, like if it's just in the pocket of like right for the masses and it hits um it's not about nails or donuts or dry cleaners or it's it's more like expression fashion film music things that are we all have to become ambassadors right we have to be willing to share it we have to be willing to share it and we have to become ambassadors for it and people have to adopt it and embrace it Right. So like you look across the board and there's certain things that people are just like uniquely known for the maritime striped t-shirt. Everyone's like, Oh, that's the French. Right. But like it, it seeps into popular culture and they embrace it and they share it and they, and they consistently put it on everything. And then everyone sees it and it's like, Oh yeah, you know, that's French. And yes, the French are known for a lot more, but you know, that is one of those things that is also uniquely theirs. And, but the bigger point being is like every, every Vietnamese person, whatever the thing ultimately comes, we have to be ambassadors for it. We have to go like, this is fucking great. And I rep it and I rock it. And, you know, and if it's the music, I'm going to put it on first before I put on something else, you know, and then I'm going to talk to you about how, like, I definitely know it. Whereas 20 years ago, it was a, it was sort of like behind closed doors kind of thing. And I, I think we broadly had an approach to our culture like that, you know, and, and I love that those things are changing, but I figure, and, you know, tell me if you're wrong, I don't want to make assumptions, but we're of similar ages. 
I think there was a lot of probably cringing when you opened up your lunchbox at school for the first time and like the first like whiffs of like Nick Mum like float out and the other kid like probably some white kid sitting at your table like cracks a joke about it all right yeah, it was like and yeah and like the first time you come home as like an eight-year-old and you're like I don't mom don't don't put that in my lunch I'm gonna buy the school lunch right and now like I guarantee you you, you open your lunch at the office and people are like, what are you having? Like, I, I grabbed a bun mate. Where? You know, I I walked past the shop tonight. And I was just, uh, I was chatting someone up in there. And I saw that they'd ordered ordered a bowl of pho. That terrible one. But they ordered a bowl of pho. And the first question she asked me is like, where can I get a good one around here? And that's where it starts to normalize. And like, that, those are the things where like all of a sudden the the cultural heritage of our people starts to like seep through and then you're flexing. Like, you know, yeah, that's, that's exactly the right word where you get to have, where you get to flex your culture. You know, that's probably the best expression for it. And it's like, where are the, where are the opportunities for us to flex our culture? And I think when you look at some of the more generic examples and even like cars, we're not going to get to flex our culture within that unless there's something about it that's uniquely our own, right? So German engineering is uniquely German because of its like rigor and precision to detail, right? Italian automotive, Italian cars are Italian because like, let's face it, when you look at a Ferrari, it evokes the shape of a woman's hips like on its side. Okay there is a cultural assumption that we make around that, that we tie to it, that they don't shy away from, you know, They're like, yes, the sensuality is in everything we do from our food to our cars. We just haven't, I, and maybe it's just me, maybe other folks who have better able to wrap their heads around their own identity will tell you, yeah, no, these are the things, but I don't necessarily know what those are yet for us that are like uniquely those unique threads that go through everything that are completely ownable to us. You know, I think we're going to have to um, bring on you, Victor Long, Michael Din. Um, there's a Dan Vo, all these brand guys, sneaker heads, music guys who just understand culture really well. And we should just do rounds of every month. We just get on and every guy just pick, one cool thing that's coming from the Vietnamese culture, whether it's from Vietnam or from the US or from wherever, and just explore it because you just brought up a good point. It's like, if you were to ask somebody to really think about it and line it all up, can't really, can't really come up with anything off the top of your head. But I think if it was an exercise that we kind of like thought about and we circled around mm -hmm. it quite a bit, something's going to come. And it, this sneaker thing, I'm, I'd be very surprised if somebody has not already started to tackle that problem because you're right. Like that's like the land of where these shoes are made. Why would yeah. somebody not hop on this opportunity? Cause right now, you know, you're right. You're right. They're making the money, making them for someone else, but you can honestly say like the, actually, you know what, as we're talking about it, the best clothes in the world are made in Vietnam. The best shoes in the world are made in Vietnam, like across the board. The tailoring, the quality of it, there's no reason why we shouldn't be known for our tailoring in a way that is better than Savile Row, you know, and, but instead we're known for like hemming stuff, you know, 
uh, in those tailoring shops. And it's unfortunate, right? And and it's good, honest work. I don't take anything away from it. It was just a branding conversation, right? There's like, wow. there was a few years back, one of the river, uh, one of the outdoor clothing companies, Kiva, I think it was, tried to make basically a conical hat and all that. And they made it out of like rafting material. And I was like, this is awesome, right? Modern interpretation version of this. I remember buying one from REI. And then like my mom looking at me and just going like, come on. You're really gonna like walk down the street in the US wearing that? I'm like, it's sunny, it's hot. This thing covers everything. It's better than a fucking cowboy hat. Kiva and there was a, just this bit of a like, Is Kiva Japanese? You know, uh I don't know. I, I kind of assumed they were just an American company. I didn't even really really didn't pay a lot of attention. They make like um everything, yeah. Sort of those like hippie slippers kind of thing, um, sandals. We need to get this conversation going because I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, because it has to start, you know, all of these things start from a thought, right? All these mm. trends, all these things start mm. from a thought, from a conversation. And, you know, I, these conversations are happening. They're, they're not, they're not, not happening. They are happening in the world. It's just now I want to start really talking about them more in 2023, like this next year, like, we got to start knowing more about like the cool hip shit, you know, and I don't want to grow old and go, you know, that's for kids. This is the young kids. I want to get in and know like, what is the next thing that, that we're going to start owning? Well, I mean, and yeah, you're right. There's something we already, there's something in there that we already own. It's just putting that spin on it all yeah. throughout everything. Right. And you look at like, I know these other folks you've had on, but like the sisters that started on some like, when you start to see people go, Hey, we're going to take that and we're going to put it on like a burger and we're going to take that and like apply it to when you start to see the recipe for like, this is how we're doing Turkey and like Thanksgiving become like Vietnamese tastes and flavors yeah, become a, a natural part of that fabric where people are like, you know, your, your mashed potatoes don't taste right. They don't taste like lemongrass, you know? Like that's where you start to change sort of like the broader, uh, the, the broader brand perception. Like, you know, what is our, what is our German mechanical personality kind of thing? Yeah. You know, what's our profile? So, but there, I mean, all those things exist. I mean, there's so much that we can take pride in. Um, I think before we started, like, you know, it's just, it's the exercise and finding it, but it's got to be true. Right. Um, branding without like any sort of real depth and like truth to the product fails inevitably i can go out and tell you like this is amazing and if it falls like or this is like the best coffee in the world and it's not people will like just shit all over it or forget it and move on quickly but like vietnamese coffee has like a unique profile that makes it wonderful memorable so that when they say hey this is this unique flavor you know that is specifically attributed to us like how do we take that and spin it into like inventive and entrepreneurial in the kitchen and like you know gastronomic expertise across the board right you take that you know the sales term like you land and expand you've got that thing now how do we like grow it out there from a fashion standpoint i want to see like dvf put like an oei on on the red carpet and be like yeah you stole that from us because it's awesome you know yeah. and then 
when I start to normalize and see it. Like I remember going to a wedding in Japan and seeing a Japanese woman wearing an Oya and I went up and I started speaking to her in Vietnamese. <laughs> I was like, oh, was like someone, because I was there at the wedding, I was like someone I can talk to. And instead she was like, no, 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 I bought this on a trip. But like, part of me is like, heart got really warm around that. Wow. You know, um, so there are those things that we own and we just have to embrace them and, and maybe also as we talk about this, and I realize the superficial things that are also wonderful also cross the cultural divide between Vicku and the people in Vietnam right now, because everyone still takes pride in in the food, cuisine, you know, pensions for the arts, fashion, and sort of like the industrious and entrepreneurial nature. Those are things that we can take a lot of pride in. You know, um, I mean, you see it now in this like resurgence of the film industry. Um, resurgence is probably the wrong word, but like the surge in our yeah. film industry and like breaking on to the national, international scene, right? You know, um, you look at the fact that like Bao does the 30 for 30 on Bruce Lee. Justin's doing like warriors, warriors, you know, and these are not uniquely there, um, uniquely Vietnamese, but you've got Vietnamese people at the helm of it who are starting to get known for Sundance. Sundance just released like a lineup and I think five movies that are coming out in 2023 in Sundance have either Vietnamese cast or producers on board. Yeah. Yeah. It's like five. So like the next, so the next thing I look for is when conventional Hollywood productions go, hey, we want to shoot in Vietnam because there's an industry there, right? We want to like go there and and actually like take advantage of the talent, the mm -hmm. folks that are there that are on the ground so we can just like shoot there versus, you know, um, going to like Argentina or Chile or something like that, you know, or Canada. Like how many countless shows are sort of shot there so i don't know um it's coming it's an interesting all, yeah all of that is coming you know george i um i look forward i always say this to every guest and and i mean it with you that i look forward to seeing you uh come back uh throughout the next few years because you know this is just the start of such a beautiful time in our in our vietnamese uh culture um to be vietnamese is such a beautiful thing and such a proud thing after so many years, you know, 40 something years of, of, of it being, for me, a very shameful place. Uh, today, it's now um, such a beautiful and I'm so full of pride to see um, all of these young people like yourself and all the guests that have come on. Um, You're so nice calling me young. <laughs> <laughs> a young man like yourself but i would like to have you come back on and you know talk about some cool trends um in the future uh with the branding uh of the vietnamese man i i really appreciate that but you know the funny thing that i'll say here is i hope that never happens because there are so many young vietnamese people who are doing such wonderful things that i think you are going to be very busy for a very long time before that opportunity ever occurs you know um in the best way possible i hope you don't have room to ever have me on your show again <laughs>
Thank you. That's very flattering. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it. I hope to see you again very soon, either in LA or New York, man. I hope so too, man. I hope so too. Thanks for coming on, George. All right. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.